Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am joined this week by Dan Wallach. How's it going, Dan? It's going great, Daniel. I'm still in uh, Siberia. Uh, if anyone uh, hears me out there to help get me home, please, I'm, I'm here beyond my, <laughs> uh, not of my own free will. Can you believe I'm on month number, December, January? I'm on, this is my fifth month in Siberia, and I'm not coming home until about middle of June. So I got another two months left in my uh, Siberian sense. I loved it so much though. I actually, my wife and I bought an apartment. So uh, we're putting the finishing touches around our like vacation, uh, you know, spread here in Siberia. Uh, we'll have a second home. And, uh, you know, I've been as involved in what's going on in U- U.S. sports law and sports betting circles as, a- as anybody. I think I've been like, more deeply plugged into what's going on in sports betting. We've had some really uh, seismic uh, happenings within the last week in sports betting. So I'm really yeah, excited so- about we, we have, uh, you know, if people are following us, this is going to be an MMA special episode. But Dan, I've been following you on Twitter. I don't know if you know this. I get notifications every time you tweet. So sometimes you tweet at like four Is that what happens? Are you going to show oh. me how to set that up sometime? I am not telling you how to do that. I am not okay. telling you how to do that. Um, I can track your sleep be- habits. I am very keenly aware of when you are awake now. Yeah, I, you know, if, if you really want to, you know, follow the, the really inside baseball stuff, you got to be up in the middle of the night because I'm 11 hours ahead in Nova Siberia. So you never know when I'm going to drop a tweet at two in the morning, three in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. But the big news, Daniel, is that the momentum for sports betting has um, accelerated to another level. Within the last week, three states, uh, New York State, Maryland and Arizona, have legalized or passed, you know, laws authorizing sports betting. And these are three major states and uh, three different states, three different plans. New York, uh, which could represent the largest uh, betting market in the country, at least for mobile sports betting, uh, is going to have a a process in in which the operators are selected by competitive bidding which is a unique uh, process in which there's a a request for proposals that is published. And then any operator that wants to come into New York, like a DraftKings, FanDuel, Barstool, Penn National, MGM, they have to comply with a a bid request and submit their best offer. And then the New York State Gaming Commission will select no 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 fewer than two sports betting platform providers and no fewer than four mobile operators. So New York State, which is one of the largest states in the country, 20 million residents, could potentially be serviced by as few as four mobile apps. Uh, By contrast, in New Jersey, I think you have in excess of 30 mobile apps. So uh, the process for New York is going to be much more constricted, and that likely is going to lead to a very high revenue share for the state. With competitive bidding, the tax rates aren't standardized. Uh, it's, It's really make your best offer. And I would expect FanDuel, DraftKings, and companies that want to participate in New York's mobile sports betting system to be in a position where they're going to offer the state at least or no worse than a 50-50 revenue split. So that's the situation in New York. Arizona will be the professional sports teams and, and Indian tribes, 10, 10 sports uh, league license, sports team licenses, 10 tribal licenses are both going to have retail and person betting as well as mobile betting. And then in Maryland, it's going to be wide open. You're going to have the casinos, the racetracks, the sports teams, as well as up to 60 mobile operators and up to 30 
retail sports betting uh, license holders. And you're going to see bars and restaurants in Maryland. You're going to see minority-owned businesses get sports betting licenses. So these three states, which are very significant states, you know, given their population size and the sports, you know, teams that play within those states, they they have uh, they they are they are going to proceed down three completely different paths of how sports wagering is structured. Structured, and I think it's a good sign for the future that this might be so the beginning of a number of the big states like Texas, potentially Florida, being added to the mix before the end of this year's legislative session. So it was a big, big week for sports betting legalization, probably deserving of its own episode. And maybe we'll do that at some point down the road. So you're, you're going to laugh uh, as before we transition to our, our guest. I had a, spoke to a law student today who shall remain nameless, and he goes, I'm really interested in sports betting. Do you know of anybody that maybe I could follow that is uh, posts a lot about sports betting legislation? And I'm like, have you heard of Dan Wallach, my friend? Um, yeah. Similarly, Dan, you're, you're going to laugh. This is a true story. I had a law student reach out and he, uh, he goes, uh, Dan, you should start a podcast. You know, there's so much cool stuff going on with Deshaun Watson uh, and cool stuff with, the, with college sports. Maybe you should start a podcast. And I'm like, thank God, Dan. And I don't, I, I don't know if you're aware of this before I tweeted it. We have, Dan, 50,000 lifetime downloads of the podcast. It's pretty, it's pretty wild when you think about it. Uh, yeah, but I, I want to get to the point where we're 50,000 per episode. Uh, never satisfied, never happy to rest on the laurels, I think. Uh, you know, sports law is a, you know, kind of a, a nice niche, and it's a niche, but I want to bring uh, kind of sports, sports law into the main, more into the mainstream. And so many of the subjects we talk about are industry subjects, not just legal issues, uh, you know, impacting the sports, but front page type of stuff. So I, I think as we continue to do this, it's, you know, going to be inevitable that we grow our audience. If you are not innovating, you are dying. Uh, and uh, Dan, we've gotten so many questions over our time together, almost one year anniversary about MMA. And you and I, uh, I, I watch it. Uh, I know you're following the sports betting side of it. Um, but we wanted to bring on a guest that would be able to cover all facets of m and So uh, we brought on Jason Cruz, who I who tweets very heavily on my timeline, a lawyer over in Washington. Um, he has his own uh, podcast, The Legal Submission. Uh, he has a book. He'll get, we'll get into all of that. But uh, we really appreciate We put this up, up on Twitter and Instagram uh, for people to give us questions. And you guys definitely responded. So without further ado, let us turn it over to Jason Cruz. Jason. Welcome to Conduct Detrimental. Thank you very much. I, I, I greatly appreciate it. So I, I will admit, I uh, am not the, uh, you know, a diehard MMA fan. I watch the big fights. I uh, tend to gamble on some of the big fights. Um, but I get a lot of questions, and I'm sure Dan gets the same, of MMA issues that I am not fully well-versed in. There's, there's, two, there's not enough time in the day to be well-versed in college sports, uh, you know, the, the, the major pro sports, uh, you know, golf. And then also cover MMA. So that's why, you know, there's a saying in the law, right? Like, you got to know what you don't know. And uh, that's why we bring you on, Jason. I'm going to call you. You don't have to say this because we have different advertising and ethical laws. I'm going to say you're an MMA legal savant. How is that? that that's great. That's more than, more than most people say in a day. So we, yeah. uh, we announced it on social. We, we reached out for questions. We got a ton, which tells us that we need to be covering MMA more. But uh, that said, the one that was on everyone's list was the antitrust case. So, Dan, I know uh, you, you were very curious about this, so I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, I, I think the antitrust lawsuit, and, and Jason, thanks for joining us uh, today. No I'm really, really looking forward to getting into these 
legal issues. You know, you've been a legal expert in combat sports and within combat sports is the combat within the courtroom. Uh, this antitrust lawsuit that was filed in the District of Nevada, I think has been pending for longer or almost as long as I've even been around sports law or sports betting. It's a six year old or six plus year old case. Can you tell us the latest? There was a there was an important decision in early December on the issue of class certification. Where are we in the lawsuit and what's at stake for the future of the UFC? So it's it is a long and winding road, and we are not even half at at the halfway pole of this particular lawsuit. Uh, so the the case is in front of Judge Richard Bulware in Nevada, Federal District Court in Nevada, and there was just a, a status conference uh, last week uh, regarding what is to be happening with with the class attic action certification. Now, definitely there have been two status conferences since the pandemic, uh, one in September, one, one in December. And essentially Judge Bulwer has stated without issuing his opinion that he's uh, going to grant class action certification for the uh, bout class of uh, of fighters, ex and current fighters, and so that's different from there. There were two two classes that that were going to be up for certification: the bout class, uh, and that, which is the bigger class, and then there is a class of individuals that said that their uh, identity rights uh, were were suppressed because of uh, the UFC's anti-competitive means. Uh, that one, the identity rights is most likely not going to be certified. So, but, but let's focus on the, the class action certification that's going to be certified. Judge Bulwer indicated that he's granting that, but the opinion hasn't come out yet. There's a lot of inferences, a lot of, lot of, lot of uh, hey, I have a draft coming up. Uh, but the one issue that just came up was a ruling by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals related to uh, a factor within class action certification regarding predominance. Now, uh, in that particular case, uh, the Circuit Court overturned class action action status uh, due to the fact that the trial court judge did not uh, over, overstepped her bounds in certifying the class. And it's because uh, she did not, uh, th there was an uh, issue related to uh, the, the technical uh, reports of the experts and identifying whether or not a certain class uh, would be actually injured. So did the and Ninth so, revise okay. or, or tighten up the certification rules to make it more difficult to get class cert because of the issues of individual issues predominating over class-wide issues. It's a new playing field now in the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, that, and that is correct. And that is a, a overarching issue which Zufa brought up, the UFC brought up uh, at the, at the um, at status conference last week. And, and that is in regards to uh, the the different uh, opposing views viewpoints of uh, finding the whether or not these fighters uh, are certified by class the the circuit court of appeals uh, which the UFC's the case that they're citing uh, indicates that they are tightening up the predominance factor of rule 23 re regarding class action certification why is the judge taking so long I remember uh, reading about this back in December that Judge Bulwer granted class cert status. Is it just a matter of issuing his written ruling? Uh, because until there's a written ruling, what's there to even take an appeal on to the Ninth Circuit? We're waiting now four months 
for him to create an appealable order? That is correct. And so one of the issues that he, he brought up in December was that the opinion was going to come out. And in, in fact, he said uh, at the Stats conference, I believe it was a Thursday, and he said the, the opinion will come out probably Monday. Never came out. Um, and one of the issues that came up was he wanted to release the uh, documents in discovery uh, as a part of his opinion, I mean, meaning he wanted to cite to them. The issue, of course, was a, a lot of the a lot of the information was sealed or, um, you know, not not uh, admitted to the problem, not given to the public. So he allowed public comment as far as whether or not these things should be sealed. Now, at that particular point, other organizations that had had to submit documents under subpoena uh, said, hey, wait a second. Uh, we don't want all of our financial information to be disclosed because we're citing to the fact of trade secrets, um, the way we run business, that kind of thing. We don't want that to be disclosed to the public. We were giving our documents because we, we were operating under the subpoena. Okay, so I remember these subpoenas were pursued in other district courts around the country. I think Central District of California for yes. one of the other uh, you know, MM, MMA organizations. But can we talk about discovery for a moment? With a case pending six years and, and we're still in the class cert phase, has merits discovery even commenced? Or has there been any discovery at all, even as to class cert? Can, so can you give us an indication as to what level of discovery and whether someone like Dana White has even sat for a deposition un, under oath? Yeah, so the so merits discovery has occurred. Dana White has sat for for his deposition uh, for three days, and um, they were they had submitted some of his deposition testimony in in the reports, which uh, you, not a lot not a lot was revealed of it. Uh, 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 aside from the fact he indicated he was a marketing genius, uh, <laughs> and he did, and he he uh, he created the UFC. But uh, but yes, you, there were were depos substantive depositions taken here. And in fact, um, even if a class cert is, is issued, the, the Zufa, Zufa has filed a motion for summary judgment. So that's still pending. Okay, so the summary judgment can't really be argued though until there's been full merits discovery. So I mean, before we turn to the ultimate relief and yeah, what, what does this mean for the industry? Can you give us a, a sort of a, uh, a break, not a breakdown, but a sort of an expectation as to where this case will go and the and the timeline it's going to operate on. Will it take another? I think the judge indicated that, you know, or you indicated that we're not even at the halfway mark. Assuming that this case goes to final judgment and that the uh, plaintiffs survive all these gauntlets, class cert, appeal on class cert, motion for summary judgment, motion in limine, blah blah blah, motion JOP, everything up and down the line. When can we reasonably expect to see? Uh, a decision or at least, yeah, a decision on summary judgment. And then ultimately, when do you think this trial actually takes place? And will it be within our lifetimes? You know, uh, you know, the best bet is uh, it, it should be done by the 20s, the end of the 20s. <laughs> but, but, no, There's most a lot of the 20s left, Jason. We have a lot of fun <laughs> left. Not, no, 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 no. Uh, so uh, as as uh, everyone can expect, um, even with the foreshadowing that a class action certification will happen, 
it's clear that Zufa is going to appeal appeal that, and that will go up to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and assuming all the machinations, where are we at, 2021? Um, assuming all those machinations occur, um, uh, and and the uh, they hear Circuit Court of uh, the Court of Appeals of the Ninth Circuit, and that's and plaintiffs uh, uh, prevail on that, and it goes back down to the trial court. They have a trial and whatnot. We're looking at maybe 2025 before, assuming nothing is settled. Um, I, my assumption, my gut is that um, if class cert is is issued on behalf of the bout class and uh, and they survive an appeal and there is no, uh, you know, they don't go up to the Supreme Court on this, that they, they're, you know, that short of that, the Zufa at some point will, you know, throw up their hands and say, let's, let's go to the table and figure out what, what we can do for these, for the, for this class. So I get, Jason, it's funny, when I, when law students tell me what classes to take, I usually say some combination of intellectual property, labor law, and antitrust. If you are a fan of the MMA, uh, what Jason has just told you, do not take lightly. This is going to be a case that's going to, uh, we'll say, have some potentially some very uh, precedent setting litigation, but it's not going to be at least listen to Jason and the normal timeline of antitrust cases for years. So I know we kind of got in the weeds on, on where the case was procedurally, but let's I'm going to ask you just kind of a, a general question. And just maybe, as you mentioned, maybe we're uh, one day having a fun day like we had on Twitter with live tweeting, uh, you know, a UFC Supreme Court case, which would be a lot of fun. But kind of tell everybody what happens in a in a world where the plaintiffs win, right? What exactly is at issue? Uh, and if the plaintiffs get everything they want, what happens? So what happens is uh, it could be a variety of things, but I think the overarching thing is uh, contracts uh, that the UFC will give to uh, fighters will have more of a uh, appeal to the fighter, meaning that they'll have some sort of leverage. Um, you know, they're not, they won't be as exclusive. They won't be as locked into X amount of years. There will be more of an opportunity, more of a bargaining unit. Um, that, that's the other thing there is that, that they'll, they'll have a chance perhaps to have some sort of bargaining union, maybe not a union, but may, maybe an association that will work with them, work with the UFC in, in, far, in, in terms of coming up with a more fair uh, salaries and, um, and purses and, and things of that nature, health insurance, things like that. Um, you, you know, um, the one big thing that comes out of it came out of the discovery was that the the total revenues of the UFC only twenty percent uh, are paid uh, to the fighters are given to the fighters whereas if you look at the other leagues you know that we're hovering more around forty five to fifty percent so um, I think uh, there be so, much more of a deal with yeah so twenty percent of revenue is all that goes at least during discovery to the fighters and the eighty percent stays with the company. Uh, that, 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 yeah, that, that is what they found. And so here's the thing, you know, um, when the UFC goes into these big media deals or they give in, get into the big sponsorship deals, you know, they forge all these big sponsorships, lucrative sponsorships, you know, all of that money is going to the UFC. You know, I, when you think about like NBA or MLB or all these other 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 leagues, when they think of the big, you know, the big, the big media deals, you know, a portion of that the Players Association will negotiate 
and collectively bargain related to that. The UFC, it goes straight to their pockets. They're not, they are giving out a portion to the fighters, but that portion is in relation to, how, uh, you know, how much the uh, fighters expend and, you know, deal with their, the blood, sweat and tears is not going toward them. And when you, 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 you look at other leagues and other athletes, in, you know, that uh, are getting much more of the pie, you know, you definitely wonder, you know, uh, why, why would fighters go, go through all of this? So here, you, Jason, this is how I know you're a pro, and maybe because I posted the questions online. You answered a couple things, and I, I just kind of want to phrase it to you like this. So obviously, the, the antitrust lawsuit is very interesting, and, and why, I mean, it's the same issues, and Jason, I know you're a WWE fan as well. There is no union to kind of fight back a little bit, and that's why when we have these really fancy collective bargaining and, um, you know, negotiations between the Players Association, be it any of the four major sports, MLS, um, there's a union fighting for a piece of that pie. When it comes to the NCA, uh, right, they get to decide how much pie, if any, is allocated. Same with UFC and same with WWE because they control the shots. There is no union. So for better, for worse, right, as crazy as it sounds, NCA athletes are on the same level when it comes to MMA fighters or wrestlers. They have no union. They really have very little rights, if any. It's kind of a, you know, play by our rules or don't play at all. So I got a couple questions um, from, you know, the social media world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a couple, um, but they're all kind of on the same point. So I know Andrew Yang is might be a, an appointee of Joe Biden at some point in the near future. He has this platform called Empowering MMA Fighters. He wants to give at, or these fighters more rights, just like kind of boxers did when they redid the boxing, uh, we'll say legislation. Boxers got a little bit more rights. Uh, Jimmy Flick retired, I think, in part, uh, an MMA fighter, because he said, we have no 401k. I'm, you know, I'm fighting out there and I don't really have good health insurance. And then, you know, you, you mentioned it really, the, uh, we'll say the billion pound gorilla in the room, um, unionization. And the question was phrased to me by someone, I think very interestingly uh, online, right? Like, I think we've, we've had a lot of conversations about whether they're, you know, fighters or wrestlers or employees or independent contractors. The, the question I had for you, just thinking about unionization long-term, um, how, if at all, did the pandemic and the lack of gate uh, either accelerate or decelerate this unionization timeline? It didn't at all. And, and here's why. Uh, the UFC was one of the first organizations to uh, come back from the pandemic. Uh, they, they were what they, um, you know, they were in Florida back in May. Uh, but they rely much more on their media deals and all, the, all of their licensing more so than actual gate. Now, definitely. Uh, we, we know now that, you know, Nevada is opening up. So they're having a big event in July, actually, uh, next week. And they're going to Florida with a, with a sold out full house. So they definitely, uh, rely a lot on the gate, but, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's not as big of a portion as say boxing, which, which does need a live gate to, you know, to pay their, their big name fighters like Canelo or something like that. And, and so here we, here the UFC is, um, you know, their big deal with ESPN has accelerated their, their, their business so much. It's, it's so much, uh, it, it done a, a tremendous amount of business. I mean, it's re the reason why Endeavor is coming back with their IPO because the UFC is one of the, it is the strongest as asset in, in their, um, in their portfolio. When it comes to uh, organization of, of the MMA f fighters, it is a big mess. 
you know, because you have a component here, the, the, the fighters that are filing a lawsuit, they want an, a trade or, or organization. They don't want a union. You have people like Leslie Smith, who is aligned with Andrew Yang uh, and want to have uh, a, a union. They want to have the fighters uh, vote uh, similar to like how, how they did with Amazon, with NLRB and, and vote to have, have a union. And so the representation of the fighters is something that all the fighters want, but they just don't know how to do it. So... Um I guess this is somewhat related, right? If the UFC, their purse is very dependent. I see you tweeting about this a lot. The, the ratings for particular pay-per-view or buy rates. Um, I know I sent this to you. Uh, I, I, I find it a very interesting topic. So Dana White, I'm not sure what event it was, but Dana White took to Instagram and he's like, hey, the fight's coming up. So some random guy responds. Uh, I'll shout him out. You know, Israel Gudian, who is not a blue check mark. He's a, we'll say he's an egg, right? He's just a faceless guy. He responds to Dana White and he goes, can't wait to pirate the F out of this. Thanks, Dana. I'm excited. And wouldn't you know, you never would think that Dana White would, would respond, but that's exactly what happened. Dana White immediately, and I can't wait to catch you, exclamation point, got a surprise for you, mother effers, this year. Now, I'm going to give it to you, right? This is piracy. It's illegal pirating. I know it, it's rampant, especially in boxing and MMA, where they don't have kind of a daily slog. They just have these pay-per-views. Do you have any clue what Dana White is talking about? No one does. No one does. But I'll tell you this. Um, he, he, um, the UFC has been on the forefront of trying to catch uh, pay-per-view pirates. Uh, pay-per-view is one of their hugest just biggest uh, biggest revenue generators, and they they are protecting their intellectual property. And from that particular standpoint, you know, just like everything else, they don't want people to record or or, or steal pay per views because that that cuts into the bottom line of of, of their business. And so when Dana White, um, you know, makes these threats about how we're going to catch you, you know, there was a interview he gave where he says they're monitoring a guy. And, you know, which seems a little illegal if you're monitoring a guy who hasn't made, hasn't uh, hasn't, um, you know, uh, done anything illegal yet. But, um, you know, they they have been they they from the beginning that uh, of Dana White and the UFC has been on the forefront trying to catch pirates, um, you know, whether or not they will go and prosecute and do these whole things where they will they sue and obtain judgments um, that happens when uh, you get these bars and clubs that do illegally uh, place the pay-per-view, they're actually uh, lawyers that, that's their job, where they go to these places and they file the lawsuits and they try to obtain judgments. It's like, uh, like in music law, ASCAP and BMI, they're yes. coming after you. I got you. I yeah, took yeah. music law, good class. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so, so, so yes, um, um, when Dana White says that, he's, it's just, uh, uh, you know, threats on Twitter. There's nothing new. He doesn't have a surprise, as far as you're aware. The surprise is, uh, no, I, I don't think that. I'm asking, uh, I'm asking coming for to you. friends. I'm asking for the, close friends the, who might the, have that, they're, they're not going to come to your house and, um, you know, I will leave my, my website, my, my uh, email just in case you need help. Anybody needs help. Okay. Uh, Jason, uh, speaking about intellectual property and monetizing, uh, you know, the UFC's assets, does the UFC have a, a plan going forward now that legal sports betting is um, 
you know, available in, in you know, close to 20 states. And I think now, now within the last week, three new states have legalized sports betting, Arizona, Maryland, and New York. Where does the UFC fit into all this as a, uh, a partner? And where do they participate? Uh, you, know, you know, just sponsorships? Or is there a way that the UF has, UFC has a deeper level of uh, involvement in the legal sports betting industry? Bet that the UFC, based in Nevada, that will be a heavy part of, of the sports betting um, uh, landscape. Uh, they already have a, a deal in place with DraftKings uh, to be the official sponsor. Or I don't know what if it's gambling sponsor or sports betting sponsor of the UFC, but DraftKings is, is one of their partners. And Dana White has already indicated that um, he, the, they will be active in in, in sports betting. Um, and I do foresee that this, they will also impl implement uh, live sports betting. Even on the, if you watch the broadcast right now, the UFC will talk about, uh, actively talk about odds to the point where they'll say things like, Oh, like as before, before the fight starts, the, uh, one of the announcers will say, you know, a lot of money came in on the underdog at last minute and, and th say things like that, where, you know, they will actively talk about betting. Yeah, but the the one uh, I guess the, the new development that has occurred in um, you know st state authorized sports betting over the last year is that now professional sports organizations are able to have uh, sports books at their venues, and in some states, Arizona, Maryland, they can even get licensed to offer mobile sports sports betting to the public. And the one the, the differentiator here, I guess, the, the difficulty for the UFC is that they have their matches all over the world. They don't have like a host venue that's sort of like the UFC arena in Florida where there's a recurring sporting event. Do you think there's a possibility or do you think the UFC could be moving more towards uh, you know, having permanent sites so that they could potentially qualify for you know, sort of these in-person in, in, in sports books at their venues? Because that's one thing that they're leaving on the table by having these you know, UFC you know, cards uh, rotating all over the world, they they, they lack uh, so they lack a, a stable you know recurring site that they could avail themselves of you know for a potential sports book. Yeah, so so two things about that. So I, I think that's a, a part of what the, they're they're kind of coming up with with the DraftKings partnership is it, how can DraftKings help them? I'm not sure if that would help with with uh, the events all over the, all, all all over the world or all over the country. The second thing is that they are one of the tenants, uh, uh, big tenants, uh, name tenants. I, I don't know, a T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. So uh, you, I could foresee them having. Uh, in stadium sports book uh, in that particular venue. So um, I think uh, on the issue of buy rates and on the, you know, the future of the sport, um, I see you tweeting about this a lot. And, um, you know, for basketball fans, right, we have Woj, we have Shams, MMA fans have Ariel Helwani, who's um, involved. I think he's almost, you know, he's almost uh, fundamental to the sport at a certain level. He's involved gets into back and forth with fighters. Um, so I think for people that, that uh, are in the know, uh, let's say, right, if ESPN were about to lose Woj, right, and Shams, I think his contract over at The Athletic is going to expire somewhat soon, there's, I imagine, right, going to be a massive bidding war. I don't know who the counterpart to Helwani is, but why don't you fill us in just on the overall status of, you know, how important Helwani is and what that could mean for the future of, you know, the TV deals and, and uh, maybe another network that could pop up. 
So I think Ariel Hawani is synonymous with, uh, you know, with, with MMA uh, reporting. I think he, he's been uh, on the forefront of, it, of uh, MMA since uh, he since it started um, in the uh, started getting huge in the 2000s. And so he, it's interesting to see how how big of a star he's become on ESPN. He, he's done uh, he's done uh, uh, the NBA as well as a sideline reporter. In addition to uh, his his core work at the uh, on ESPN. Now his contract is up in June, from what I understand. He had recently just uh, left CAA, who was his agent. So I'm not sure who's representing him now. Well, you know, uh, is there an, another outlet? that could use Helwani most definitely if they want to get into the MMA space. How much does ESPN want to have him? You know, ESPN, Brett Okamoto, who is also an uh, ESPN uh, reporter, and he does a lot of the uh, a lot of the interviews with Dana White and a lot of more, more in-depth interviews. Uh, and so he could be someone that could step right in for Hawani if he would if he had to, if he decides to leave. Uh, who would want Hawani? You know, he he could do uh, he could move to the Athletic or another uh, another um, media company. I don't I don't foresee him on something like Barstool or or anything like that. So my uh, this this is a question near and dear to my heart. I don't know if it's taboo in the MMA world, but I am a Conor McGregor fan. I'm a Fan of all of his antics, he is very much at the intersection of like wrestling heels and MMA stars. So um, the story actually, we got news this morning. So uh, McGregor had a looming sexual assault case over in Corsica, which was dropped uh, for lack of uh, lack of evidence. So we'll, I'm going to get you off the hot seat. By the way, Jason, how hot is that seat? We're giving you a lot of questions here. Is it hot? No, it's it's is it's, it cool? it's hot. It's 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 very hot. But I'm I'm cool. <laughs> They told off. me to give you the Socratic method, but we're doing that's, that's okay. I, I'm 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 friends with Socrates. So let's let's pretend. Um, now this this was one that came across my feed. Let us pretend that you are in a contracts class and you are dealing with the issue of consideration, um, and you are the uh, you know, hypothetically the lawyer for one Conor McGregor. Um, there is a Dustin Poirier uh, McGregor fight number three that's coming up. We'll, we'll call this the number two and a half fight. The, the question that I think everyone wants to know, is Conor McGregor bound to pay Dustin Poirier's charity? Jason, you're on the clock. Explain what we're dealing with. So he, uh, so as part of the goodwill tour that Conor McGregor wanted to, uh, you know, wanted to do, he he said he would he would uh, donate $500,000. A lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. I mean, he yeah, Dustin Poirier's foundation. And this was prior to their second fight, which was in January. And so from all the information that uh, we, we know, the two parties uh, gave, up, gave the information of, about how to donate that. You know, here, here's the money uh, or here's where you donate it. And so Dustin um, revealed that the money never was sent to his foundation. Uh, McGregor's response was that there was never an indication or a plan as to where the money would go. Now, the question it will be for the law school students is there was there a subsequent uh, was there a subsequent issue related to the conditions of getting the money? That would be a bruised ego, correct? 
<laughs> yeah, a bruised ego. Although, he, I mean, it, it sounded after the fight that both of them were very happy and they, they were happy with each other. Good job. We'll see you down the road kind of I'm thing. I'm sure Connor and, was thrilled that he lost, but but go on. <laughs> well, he was thrilled with a paycheck afterwards. Sure. But, um, you, you know, I, I definitely think the issue is, w- w- were there conditions made for the donation? Meaning that we'll give you the $500,000, but we want it to go to charities within X in, in the state of Louisiana only, or only for ki- homeless kids or only for kids all for this particular plan. Was that a condition of, of giving the money, you know, and it sounds like Poye said, you know, uh, I think he may, he, he, he was, he was a lawyer on, on, on Twitter, uh, offer acceptance, you know, uh, there was consideration. You, you didn't, co- but you didn't come through with the money. Uh, but McGregor's uh, adds some additional conditions like, well, I, I was, I never was privy to a plan. So, you know, I saw it, Khabib it, got in the fun too. He's, <laughs> he's posting foreign gifs that I don't even know what they're talking about, but he's, he's in I think, I think it, uh, blunt, bluntly it said, you guys should just fight for it. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, and so, yeah. So anyway, long story short, I think Poya came back on, on Twitter and just said, you know, hey, um, uh, you know, I shouldn't have put that out there. We're going to do the fight. Uh, we'll, you know, we, we'll deal with that at some, some certain time. So anyway, um, how does that leave it? Will it be a lawsuit about it? You know, it seems weird. All of it no seems chance. Weird, right? No chance there's a lawsuit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but it just seems very, very. I mean, obviously, for this is a great um, uh, law school exam. But you know, this is one of those things where it's just a bad PR move on Connor's part because, hey, you know, you didn't have to say five hundred thousand. You could have said, hey, fifty thousand dollars, and. It could have happened. And even if it didn't happen, Dustin probably wouldn't make a big stink about it because it was just like, uh, you know, it was just a thing. But still, uh, I guess it, it's good uh, PR for Dustin. He's a, he's a great guy. He seems like a great guy. Um, and the foundation it works to help kids in Louisiana, where he's from, as well as, you know, he does other charity work in Uganda, building wells and things like that. So it, it's a good, uh, it's a good uh, organization and it just paints Conor McGregor in that fe- heel role uh, as a person who doesn't give to good charity, you know? Well, I guess uh, before we, we, I have one more question, I'm going to give it back over to Dan, but this okay. is why we have you on because I am not in the, the ecosphere of MMA. I've been calling him Poirier, which is definitely not how to pronounce it. It is Poirier. And even though I took French, I should have known that. It could have been Poirier. I, maybe I'm not. You are, you are listen, Poirier? the burden of proof is on. No, is, it, it could be Poirier. You're right. It's, you're, you're right. I am 100% wrong. Now, I did take French, but I don't know about that. So anyway. you, you mentioned a word that obviously gets my attention when you say that there is good heel work being done. And uh, this is my last question, and I will give uh, the seat. A, you can pretend it's a cool seat. This is a scolding hot seat. You've, you've handled these questions wonderfully. My last question for you, last one on the agenda. This is the final exam. You mentioned heels. There was maybe a, no bigger wrestling heel in the last 20 years uh, at some point. Um, I guess Brock, Brock kind of goes neutral. He's kind of like mixed. He's somewhere in the middle. But Brock Lesnar has a fancy lawsuit uh, against Mark Hunt that's been kicking around. I didn't know it until you said it, that it was still bouncing around. So uh we'll we'll say uh yeah i mean brock uh, is long gone from the ufc world but his uh the remnants of of him are still felt very large so tell us what's going on the latest on the mark hunt brock lesnar lawsuit 
So to boil it down to you, um, um, they fought at UFC 200. Uh, Lesnar, Lesnar won. Uh, it found, they found out later on that uh, Le- Lesnar took performance-enhancing drugs. Hunt filed a lawsuit against the UFC, Dana White, and Brock Lesnar, stating that, you know, the UFC knew. We, even Jason, though they had, let me correct you. His oh. name is not Brock Lesnar. It's Brock Lesnar. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, so anyway, uh, so Lesnar, Mark Hunt filed a lawsuit saying that, hey, UFC knew, even though they had USADA, uh, the testing agency to test uh, for performance-enhancing drugs, they didn't test Lesnar uh, before the UFC. That was his allegation. Um, so, so he claims breach of contract because of, uh, you know, he didn't sign on to fight a guy that was going to be uh, on steroids. Uh, and he also, uh, the most interesting part about it, he, he filed a battery claim against Lesnar. And uh, so long story short, the case gets dismissed by the federal district. Um, I believe it was in Nevada as well. And Hunt, uh, it seemed like a bad case for Hunt. Hunt appeals. Okay. And so this goes up to the Ninth Circuit. Oral argument was heard in uh, October of of last, last year. Interesting part of this particular case regarding the battery. Um, the battery, uh, the trial court cited a case, uh, I believe it was Avila versus uh, Central, uh, uh, Central Coast Community District. Basically, that particular case relates to a guy, a pitcher who beanballed a, a batter. The batter had uh, subsequent injuries and uh, the, he, the batter filed a lawsuit. The, the issue here is that, um, you know, is this outside the scope of sport of baseball? The opinion for the California, uh, California court said, no, it is not outside the scope. Even if the guy was told by his pitching coach or he, he decided to go rogue and just hit the guy, it is not outside the means of, uh, of the sport. Now, to kind of put this in context, let's think about this. Last year on Monday Night Football, Miles Garrett ripped off the helmet of uh, Mason Rudolph and hit him with it, if you remember that, from Monday Night Football. I saw. Maybe. Maybe. Is that a part of the, the game of football? Uh, in the oral arguments, example came up of Joe Kelly beating Astro players. Um, and you recall that Kelly made the face, the funny face at the Astros who were, who were yelling at Kelly. And the question there was, um, is there, was, there, was that a part of baseball? Here, the question that was posed by the Ninth Circuit is, is someone who took performance-enhancing drugs, was that within the scope of the sport of MMA? Because he didn't sign on to fight a guy uh, on steroids. Moreover, the UFC had in place a drug testing program uh, to prevent that from happening. Now, it, it is, is taking uh, performance-enhancing drugs within the scope. So that, that was a question that the Ninth Circuit um, uh, posed to uh, the UFC attorneys, Brock Lesnar's attorneys. And they, you know, they, of course, indicated that he didn't do, Brock Lesnar didn't do anything out of the ordinary. He didn't pull out a chair. He didn't gouge his eyes. He didn't do anything like that. So that question is still before the Ninth Circuit. The, uh, the opinion has not been issued, but it's, it, 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 
it poses an interesting question as far as um, if you are taking performance enhancing drugs, is that within the scope of the sport? Very interesting. I mean, you might be the only one that actually write MMA law books. So mixed martial arts and law, dispute suits uh, and legal issues. For those that are uh, listening to this, Jason is holding up a copy. Um, I know you have a, a podcast, Legal Submission. Uh, tell everybody uh, about your book and where they can find you uh, everywhere. So th- this came out um, uh, last year. Uh, I, I it's a compendium of lawsuits uh, related to the sport of MMA. It talks. It goes more in depth about uh, contract issues, uh, whether or not the Muhammad Ali uh, Muhammad Ali Act, which protect, protects boxers, should be uh, should expand to MMA. Uh, it also talk goes in depth about the the issues related to independent contractors, uh, whether there should be a union. And of course, the antitrust law. Jason, uh, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, definitely uh, check out Jason's book and follow him on all forms of social. Jason, thank you very much. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for the time. So that was Jason Cruz, MMA law aficionado, we'll say. Um, this would normally be the part of the podcast where Dan and I go back and forth. And we talk about what was good and what to watch for and all that fun stuff. But uh, we'll say that duty calls. Uh, and Dan was pulled into action. As Dan mentioned at the top of the show, it's a very busy week in sports betting, among other things, with being a uh, a, a large Deshaun Watson week, uh, the large college football week. Um, There's a big sports betting week. So we obviously had a lot we didn't cover. The, the one thing I wanted to bring up uh, that I think is important and why we talked about the UFC antitrust lawsuit so much um, you know, obviously, the Major League Baseball has an antitrust exemption, which is well documented. Anyone that's taken a sports law class, it's usually one of the first ones uh, that, that you uh, explore is Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption. So those that are new listeners of the podcast, there is an episode that I will recommend that you take a look at. Uh, you know, I put it in your queue. It's, it's a very important one, and I'll explain why. Um, a couple episodes back, like a, maybe a couple months ago at this point, we had Garrett Brocious on the podcast. Garrett Brocious, no relation to Scott Brocious, is a former major league, uh, former minor league baseball player. Uh, he, uh, you know, played with, um, some big names that you might know. I think, I think Scherzer he played with and Kinsler, um, but if memory serves, uh, why Garrett Brocious on the podcast, not because he was a former minor league baseball player, because he went from minor league baseball to law school. Um, and is the lead plaintiff, the lead attorney in a lawsuit filed by minor league baseball players against, uh, against major league baseball. And he's uh, asking for more money to be paid more. It sounds a lot like the same type of tones of the UFC's lawsuit against, um, you know, the fighters lawsuit against UFC. So, um, I want to kind of just explain why, why this is so important today. Um, major league baseball has an antitrust exemption. If you listen to Garrett Brocious podcast, he explains, uh, you know, his episode, he explains, uh, you know, that it's very hard for him to prevail um, with Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption. If by the grace of God, that antitrust exemption went away, it would make his path to victory on behalf of minor league uh, baseball players much easier. Okay, so let's put that there for a second. Now, uh, I know we have a lot of new listeners to this episode because it's a special MMA episode, so we're going to get some new people. If you're just interested in baseball, we had a a topic on our last podcast that was uh, in reference to Major League Baseball's decision to move the All-Star game out of Atlanta, Georgia, and over to uh, the home of the Colorado Rockies over in Colorado. Rock, uh, Colorado. Now, uh, Taryn and I had a spirited debate um, as to whether the Major League Baseball's decision to insert themselves into politics was going to, we'll say, put a uh, put 
fuel behind the story to make it get bigger or if it was going to decrease the fuel and it was going to go away. I was of the opinion, hey, if you make a political stance and you say, hey, we're Major League Baseball, we're, we're making this political decision, it's probably going to do more harm than if you just kind of let it go by the wayside and just, you know, just let it be. You made a commitment to the city of Atlanta, just keep it there. Um, I, my, my politics are sports, so I, you don't read into anything I'm saying. I, I just said if the story, and I have a PR background, you want the story to go away, don't take an affirmative position one way or the other, right? That was my advice. And Taryn said, hey, the story is probably going to go away because they've nipped this in the bud. Those, those messy questions that players could get faced with on All-Star Weekend, those won't be there anymore because the game's in Colorado. So maybe it's the grizzled veteran in me. Maybe it's, uh, you know, because I've seen a thing or two in my lifetime. Um, I knew the story wasn't going to go away, but I did not know how, how, uh, how big it would get, we'll say. Uh, there were three Republican um, uh, officials uh, Senator Cruz, Josh Hawley, I'm not sure of the third one offhand, um, but they are basically uh, had a press conference where they announced that because Major League Baseball took an affirmative stance, we'll say in favor of the left, that they are going to go after Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption. Um, this was uh, lent itself perfectly to, uh, you know, that boy, that escalated quickly because it did a decision to move the All-Star game. I don't really think anyone could have expected that uh, all of a sudden Major League Baseball's uh, antitrust exemption would be at risk. Could it be smoke and mirrors? Sure. Um but, uh, you know, enough to hold a press conference to go after that. So uh, it's an important development. Uh, so obviously, Major League Baseball has to defend against that with their lobbying efforts and whatever they're going to do, because the antitrust exemption is very important to the business of the sport. Obviously, I think the players would like that to go away a little bit. I know in the minor league context, I would love for it to go away. And now this goes back to our podcast with Garrett Brocious. To the extent that, that pod, the antitrust exemption goes away, which, you know, uh, we, it's not necessarily speculation because there there are officials trying to do that right now. Uh, that case from minor league baseball players suing major league baseball gets a lot different. Um, so I don't know if you want to follow this, it's a very interesting topic, you know, in the intersection of politics, sports, baseball, minor league place, you know, baseball, it's very, very fascinating. So um, I would definitely check, check that out. Um, but I will say, um, I'm going to say this is an official victory for me that the story got much bigger because of baseball's decision to move the game. I, I have no problem, um, you know, with basketball players or anybody, um, you know, athletes in their own sport making a political statement. It's their sport, right? That's, this is my whole kind of platform. If it's their sport, they can put a message on the back of their jersey. I don't really have a problem with that. Um, but for Major League Baseball to definitively say, hey, we as a sport are basically siding with the left. I had a feeling, shockingly, that that was going to invite the right to have some type of counterpunch. I think it's a fascinating, fascinating issue, but obviously we'll, we'll stay on top of that. We don't, sports are my politics, but, you know, this is an issue that you, you can't ignore as a, as a sports lawyer. For myself, Dan Lust, I'm at Sports Law Lust on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Dan is at Wallach Legal. He's very active on Twitter. We can't convince him to get his Instagram ramped up. So eh, follow him on Twitter. He's a good follow over there. Lots of sports betting news. Um, uh, and then uh, the show is at con detrimental at, on twitter and instagram and uh because of my foresight i reserved at sports law over on tiktok so uh yeah if you want to help us boost our numbers over on tiktok if you like the videos that we take from tiktok and put on twitter and instagram definitely shoot us some, uh, a follow over there and i will say last but not least something i've been meaning to bring up on the podcast for a long time we uh you know obviously we hit fifty thousand downloads so we're we have a lot of people that are, are uh, following the podcast downloading the podcast sharing with friends but we don't have a lot of, for whatever reason, is reviews uh, of the podcast. So when people do review it, they give it five stars. Obviously, you know, people are very nice. Um, but uh, it would very, really help to spread the gospel of sports law, as they say. If you can take five minutes and give us a five-star review, tell us what you like. You like the, you like the banter. You love uh, Wallach sports betting. Whatever, whatever it is, it would be really helpful to the, um, the growth of the podcast to continue to spread that. 
uh, you know, spread the gospel and get sports law in bigger and better stages with each passing day. Uh, sports business, I think, has kind of permeated pop culture at this point. Darren Ravel has you know million plus followers, but we're still making our way there in sports law. So whatever uh, the listeners could do to help uh, spread that would be fantastic. As always, stay tuned to our feeds for the intersection of sports and law, and we will see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.